Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. What's up, guys? It's Christine, your weekly host of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. And I'm happy to say that the Ethereum 2.0 Dream Team co-host duo is back together again after a week-long hiatus. Welcome back, Ben. How was your vacation? Hey, Christine. Uh, it was great. I had a lovely time. My wife and I spent some time pottering around 13th century cathedrals and 14th century castles and getting out in the uh, big wide world. And it was lovely, just a, a few days away. And I'm back and raring to go. Traveling in the midst of COVID, I mean, how was that? Uh, well, we didn't go far, just a couple of hours drive. And uh, they're just starting to ease restrictions over here in the UK. So we're not exactly back to normal, but we can go to restaurants and we can meet indoors now and things are looking up. Yeah, that's definitely what it feels like in North America over here. Just across the ocean, it feels the same too. Slowly but surely, restaurants are starting to open up. People are being a little bit looser with the restrictions. So it's good to hear. I was quite sad to not have you last week. On the show, I interviewed Ethereum Foundation's Tim Baiko about governance on Ethereum and the upcoming EIP-1559 code change. Not going to lie, it was a fun episode with Tim, and I do encourage anybody who's listening to check it out after you listen to this episode. But one thing that last week's show did not feature was your usual markets commentary, Ben. I really think that you've made a name for yourself on this show, Mapping Out ETH 2.0, for your markets commentary. That was quite missed. Uh, last week. <laughs> My, yeah, I can endorse that that episode. It was a great listen. And uh, I love hearing uh, Tim talk about all these things. Uh, as for markets, I, I, I don't know about that, Christine. Uh, maybe people appreciate my uh, super simple approach. You know, buy low, sell high. <laughs> that's, that, that's, how, that's how to do it. <laughs> I'm going to want a little more than that. I'm going to want a little bit more on your thoughts about two markets topics this week. Uh, we're going to start off the show with our usual markets update. And I do want your hot take on these two things. The first thing is at the time of this recording, Monday, May 24th, ETH prices have started to bounce back slightly after two week downward trend. ETH prices hit a 30 day low of $1,739 on Sunday, so yesterday, but it passed 24 hours. ETH prices have appreciated 26% and are trending right now at about $2,440. Bitcoin similarly had suffered these past two weeks, but in the last 24 hours, like Ethereum, has been on the upward climb again with its price having appreciated about 11% over the past 24 hours. So now many people have speculated that the reason for why prices were on a downward trend in the first place was due to concerns over a regulatory crackdown on cryptocurrencies in China. There are many articles on Coindesk over the past two weeks reiterating warnings from the Chinese government about stricter rules and policies against cryptocurrencies that aren't actually quite new. But since these speculations and concerns have resurfaced now, there are China-based crypto startups like 
the crypto exchange Huobi, who've responded to the the recent speculation and the resurfacing of these like warnings from the Chinese government that were around since 2017, but are are circulating again now. Huobi has responded uh, with new actions by scaling back and suspending some of its services and products, like its futures contract trading services, leveraged investment products, exchange traded products. These ones are are all starting to close down. That's the actions that have been taken by this one China-based crypto exchange, uh, which makes a lot of investors and a lot of people in the cryptocurrency community a bit concerned. Ben, were you concerned at this market development? What are your thoughts on how governments like the Chinese government in your view, how much of an impact do you think it's having on the crypto markets? I think the first thing to observe is that I don't think there is is one thing which made the markets, you know, fall by 50-60%. It wasn't, you know, because of China or it, it wasn't because of any any one thing. It was an obvious bubble. And you know, when somebody launches a dog coin and it's suddenly worth billions of dollars, this is your top signal, folks. And it just takes a little prick, just some piece of news, and it could be any piece of news and the bubble bursts. You know, I think that's what happened uh, here. I don't know whether it was about the the announcement from China or, or one of the other bits of bad news that, that came out, you know, Elon Musk's latest antics or, or what. But as for the news from China, my understanding is that this is not new. This is just a reiteration of something that the government there has been saying for several years now and have made a number of announcements basically along the same lines and they're just reminding everybody there so it remains to be seen if it's a long-term effect on the markets but i I suspect it's just you know another sort of short-term reorganization and things will be back to business as usual fairly fairly soon from a tech development point of view I, i don't see any big impact but you know it took a bit of frothiness out of the market and that's okay Yeah, yeah. I've been hearing a lot of people on Twitter saying that this recent downturn was not so much a market crash, but a market correction to kind of readjust expectations and price Mm. points to cut away from all of the hype and all of the speculation that was positive and that was pushing prices way, way up. But as with any bull cycle, there is a sense of euphoria that comes along with it. Do you think that this bull cycle is over? Are we getting ready to go into a crypto winter again since the market, you know, has its ups and downs, has the up of the the recent crypto bull market? Do you think it's over? Are we preparing now to go into a a more tempered cryptocurrency market phase? I kind of hope it's a bit more steady. I mean, if you zoom out a bit, we're still 10 to 20 times up on where we were last year, the whole of last year, and over $2,000. I remember it wasn't many weeks ago we were uh, euphoric about breaking $2,000 for the first time. And we haven't gone below that, or we've barely gone below that in the last uh, couple of weeks. And so, you know, getting it into perspective, we are, uh, prices are not doing badly despite a large correction. I would be happy to see the market a bit less up and down. It, it is a bit of a distraction. What worries me is the the new people coming in and getting burnt, which when you have a lot of froth and a lot of hype, People are buying at obvious inflated prices and then getting burnt. You know, that puts them off. It's not a good experience for for engaging newcomers to the whole ecosystem. You know, I think people should do their own research and blah, blah, blah. But it's still not great if, you know, they buy one day and a week later they're down 40, 50%. It's uh, not a good experience. So 
I would be happy to see something a little more moderate uh, coming ahead. You know, zoom out to five-year, ten-year timelines. I think we're way, way below what we will be in in years to come, based on tech fundamentals. That's all. Not right, financial right. advice. <laughs> yes, anything we say on this podcast is not financial advice. But speaking of some of the the distractions that do come along with crypto markets, I want to talk about one other thing that isn't so much related to crypto markets and sometimes how all-consuming, you know, market movements and prices can be. I want to talk a little bit about something that's more tech-related, but is still about a market in particular, and that is the Ethereum fee market. Our show guest, Tim Baiko, last week had, had talked to us a little bit about what this change to Ethereum's fee market will mean. And he tweeted out after our show recording last Thursday that a new blockchain explorer of the public Ethereum test network by call had been launched and that this public test net shows full transaction data about what Ethereum's fee market would look like after the EIP-1559 code change slash upgrade. So basically the fee market for Ethereum where transaction fees would be set by these base fee rates that the network dictates as opposed to what users set themselves looks to be working quite smoothly on the Bicle testnet. And there were several questions that even I posed to Tim about, you know, how exactly to read the new transaction data, how to look up new parameters like the base fee, like the inclusion fee, like the max priority fee, et cetera. And it seemed like there were many people interested in like how users would engage with Ethereum's fee market after EIP-1559 is rolled out. Ben, on your side, I know, I know you're probably not having too much time like looking at Twitter and stuff like that, but how prepared would you say users and decentralized application developers are? How prepared are they for this fee market change, which is upcoming in around mid-July for Ethereum? Yeah, the EIP-1559 is definitely more complicated at a protocol level. Yeah, it introduces extra parameters and more moving parts, and there's a lot more going on. But the end goal of it is actually to simplify user experience. So users, the average user of Ethereum sending a transaction to the network doesn't need to worry about all this machinery in the background. They will just have a single price and that's the price to be included in the next block. And that'll just make it much easier for wallets and applications to estimate a good gas price for that transaction without having to, you know, make bad assumptions on behalf of the user or ask the user to set a price or whatever. It, it's just going to work. So that, that's a hope. Um, and, you know, people uh, like uh, yourself and myself who like to dig around and kind of see what's going on behind the scenes is going to be a bit more complicated. But I'm pretty confident that the wallet developers and the app developers are going to make use of this to make the whole experience much better for setting gas prices. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. 
Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. It's interesting that a lot of it is abstracted away from users and how EIP-1559 ensures that it's not the users who have to set their own fees, understand uh, Ethereum's fee market to the point where they can guess, okay, this is like about a right fee price for me to submit my transaction, or this is too low, I need to bump it up a little bit. The network will basically dictate that for you. On this topic of users who expect EIP-1559 to make Ethereum's fee market far more efficient and for fees to be on Ethereum to be that much lower, so much lower because block sizes on Ethereum can grow to be twice as large as it currently is right now. Are you concerned a little bit about disappointment from users once they realize that EIP-1559 won't actually uh, lower fees all that much and block size as well? They can go up to be two sizes, double the maximum size it is right now, that those block sizes are not something that they can they can control. That basically the network, right. again, will step in and just automate small blocks, large blocks, medium yep. blocks, regardless of what users think they should get. Yeah, that's right. And any kind of large blocks will be temporary. And uh, you're absolutely right, Christine, that overall gas prices won't go down significantly, but they will be much more even, much smoother, and you'll have much more confidence about you know when your transaction will be included. There should be a yeah, small overall reduction because people won't need to overbid quite so much to get the transaction in included, but that will be minor in the grand scheme of things. And we see huge fluctuations just now, four or five days ago, gas prices were like 300 guay. And then this morning, they were somewhere in the 30s. I mean, if you got a factor of 10 difference over a few days, the effect of the IP 1559 is going to be tiny compared to that. Uh, so it just depends what's going on in the network. It's interesting to talk about how fee market prices are set and how that's actually a lot more predictable than when we talk about the crypto price markets and what <laughs> might be moving those prices up and down. It's nice to have a little bit of contrast between these two markets. I think that about wraps up our market section for the week. What's on our tech agenda for today? I thought I'd bring just an update on Rayanism, which if you recall is this sort of hackathon attempt to build a merge testnet. So a real prototype of what Ethereum looks like on proof of stake. And as part of that, the, the various teams involved. So we had the ETH1 teams who are the execution engines. So Nethermind, Geth, uh, Besu were the three participants on that side. And we had the four ETH2 client teams, which are the consensus engines, the proof of stake engines. So uh, Teku, Prism, Lighthouse, and Nimbus. Uh, they were all involved, and it was coordinated by the Ethereum Foundation. So Proto Lambda, great uh, character from the Ethereum Foundation, was uh, getting all the parties uh, coordinated and working together and did a, an unbelievable job of sorting all that out. They managed to put up two test nets. So Steklo lasted a day, and it was intended mm -hmm. to last a day. It was just really a very initial attempt. That, that was a little bit bumpy, and I think revealed that uh, they needed a, a better specification, a clearer spec 
and some tests in particular, because nobody had a chance to test their clients before hooking them up. So, you know, it was always going to be a bit uh, tricky, but Steklo worked in the end. So they went away, spent a week writing tests uh, for the clients and then getting the clients, passing those tests and then hooking them up again and did a week long test net called Nocturne and were able to demonstrate all the clients interoperating. So they had the 12 combinations of ETH1 and ETH2 clients uh, all ran throughout and were able to launch transactions. So actual Ethereum transactions and you know contract calls and so forth on the network. And yeah, it wasn't flawless, but it did the job of demonstrating that the merge, the move to proof of stake is very doable. We know what needs to be done. We know how to do it. It's just now process and delivery. There are other things that they'll go on to. So for the time being, the teams, you know, on both sides have got other things to focus on, like the Altair fork on the ETH2 side and the London fork on the ETH1 side. But we'll come back together in the next few weeks and put sharding on this thing and put validate withdrawals on this thing and maybe a roll up and then just use it as a sort of um, an opportunity to explore what the future looks like. Was there anything unexpected that came up when you guys were running the Nocturne test network that you know will have to be fixed for the third test network that illustrates the merge? Because I remember the one thing that was learned from Steklo was that there seemed to be a latency in communication between the ETH1 and the ETH2 clients. And that was one thing that needed to be resolved so that there wasn't any miscommunication, basically, so that you could ensure that transaction data from the Ethereum one side was being propagating to the Ethereum 2 side. What did you guys learn from the Nocturne test network? So I only kind of loosely followed this. There were just a couple of glitches around sending transactions. Not quite sure what was going on there, but occasionally there were some nodes would process them and some wouldn't. And there was something around following the ETH1 deposit contract. So the, the consensus clients have to follow the deposit contract so they know when to onboard new validators. I know that Teku, my client, had a little bug in that, uh, in that area, but that was good to diagnose and get that fixed. And that affected voting for onboarding new validators. So all the consensus clients vote on the state of the deposit contract. And if, if enough of them agree, then you can start onboarding new validators. And there were some hiccups in that, but we know what the root causes were, easy fix. So no big deal. The, the big question now is what does the API, the application program interface look like between the consensus client and the execution client? So you've got these existing ETH1 clients and existing ETH2 clients, and they need to talk to each other. And an interface was hacked up for the Steklo and Nocturne networks for Rayanism. But that's not going to be the permanent one. It was kind of quick and dirty. And now there are endless, endless, endless debates. Uh, this is the other thing that computer scientists love to argue about almost even more than serialization formats that we talked about before is <laughs> uh, APIs. So this, this discussion could go on for a while, but it'll be fine. <laughs> and when you say API, do you mean like a blockchain explorer, like Etherscan? How do we see what's happening on the Ethereum 1 chain and the Ethereum 2.0 chain? Or is this something entirely different? Those interfaces remain as they are, but there's a new interface, which is how does the ETH2 client, say Teku, talk to the ETH1 client, say Geth. They need to communicate with each other now in this new merge format. So we need an agreed protocol that everybody implements and so that each client can talk to each other client. Everyone has a different opinion on what this looks like. So it's, it's the details that trip you up. 
I see. I see. And I know that you had mentioned that the next steps will be to add sharding, add all these new fancy features like validator withdrawals. But as I understand, you know, the only thing that's really integral is for the merge to be able to to happen. I mean, sharding comes later. Validator withdrawals could come later. I mean, if it comes sooner, that's great for me, the ETH 2.0 validator. But now that you've talked a little bit about what you guys have learned from Nocturne, how you guys are going to be working on the on the API layer, any updates to timeline? Are we still <laughs> thinking about end of December, early 2021? Is there, now that you guys have seen the Nocturne testnet for about a week now, are estimations even more like estimated <laughs> to be earlier? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about if, if development timeline has been updated at all. Because- yeah, the when merge question is hard in a distributed community to you know, to make deadlines or commit to fixed dates. We prefer to have sort of coordination targets in terms of dates, I think. And we don't want to leave anyone behind. So, uh, you know, some of the teams are smaller than others or some have been involved so far and, and some haven't. And so getting everybody up to speed is also important. So there has been a little bit of pushback on getting the merge done this year from more than one of the teams. Uh, I think the ETH2 teams are very gung-ho, right? We're we're used to moving at high velocity, and we've had the luxury of not having half a trillion dollars worth of value on our chain. So we've been able to, you know, move quick if we break things and we fix them and it's fine. But in the ETH1 world, they move very cautiously, very slowly, carefully. And we'll talk about that in a moment, I think. It's a different approach to decision-making and commitments to big changes. So there's a bit of tension, I think, between these two. And I suspect we need to slow down a bit, reset our expectations, because there's going to be a huge amount of testing and convincing everybody that this is completely safe and mm-hmm. is going to go perfectly smoothly. I, I'm beginning to think that we will not ship the merge in 2021. I think that's over-optimistic. We might, but I don't want to commit to it because, you know, that's uh, a hostage to fortune. I would like to see it in Q1 next year. Some people are talking about maybe Q2, but, you know, basically in a year's time from now. That feels long to me, but that's where we are. Yeah. And it's interesting that a lot of that comes not from the tech development so much, because from what you explained with how the Rayanism project is going and how it went. I mean, on the tech development side of things, things are looking really optimistic, but on the community Mm. side of things of getting people to feel like it's safe, that's going to require a lot more work. And for the last few minutes of the show, I do want to drill down back into our little segment of community updates, which are not things related to ETH market or ETH tech development, but just on the cohesiveness and decision-making process of the decentralized community that we call Ethereum, which is quite another can of worms. <laughs> so last <laughs> week I did I did chat with Tim about the governance process of Ethereum. And it was interesting what he was saying about how the difficulty around Ethereum governance is not a, is not a bug, but a feature that prevents, you know, anybody from just walking into the community and 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 making changes to the protocol without everybody being on board with it. And there was a recent blog post that was shared on the Ethereum Foundation's website about a severe threat against the Ethereum platform that was only recently resolved back in April through the Berlin hard fork upgrade. Basically, there was a network exploit that was flagged to all the Ethereum software client teams on October 4th, 2019 by security researchers Hubert Ritzdork and Matthias Egli. I hope I'm saying their names right. 
And from that point, October 4th, 2019, basically Ethereum software client teams were working. It's kind of in secret, pseudo secret to get a solution out for this severe exploit as quickly as possible without being too public about it so that, you know, no potential hackers would take advantage of this known vulnerability. And it was in April through the Berlin hard fork upgrade again that the threat was resolved. But when I heard about this, it really made me think about how governance works on Ethereum and how it was possible that Ethereum client teams were able to work a little bit under the radar to prevent this exploit from being taken advantage of. You know, as a community, as the Ethereum community, which I think I'm a part of, is now finding out about it in May. So Ben, did you hear about this security exploit? What was your initial reaction to it? Because for me, I was like, oh, wow, that's, this is shocking. <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's not the first time it's happened in either, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin or, you know, the Lightning Network, Bitcoin's payment network has had these kind of issues before too. Seems like something that's almost unavoidable, but very different for, for a blockchain, a decentralized community to, to deal with. Yeah, we should get it. Uh, into perspective, it wasn't a sort of classic security vulnerability in that nobody was going to get hacked, funds are safe. It was more a DOS opportunity, uh, a griefing attack. So there was potentially a way that the chain could be slowed down. Blocks would take much longer to produce and process than they ought to do. And then that would slow down the chain. And we've seen something like this before in late 2016. Uh, there were the Shanghai attacks. And basically, they come from mispricing of opcodes in the Ethereum virtual machine. So operations that could potentially take a long time are cheaper than they ought to be so that an attacker could launch each block has a gas limit. And if an attacker filled up that gas limit with underpriced operations, the block then would take too long to, to process. And so that was the nature of the attack. Um, in uh, 2016, it was dealt with very quickly by doing um, a, a quick hard fork. Was it Spurious Dragon? I don't recall, but something like that. But a couple of hard forks were done in quick succession to fix the opcode pricing. This was a little more complex, but it wasn't a complete secret, right? I mean, you know, there were people around who who knew about it. It'd be, it had sort of leaked out. It was a sort of open secret. And I think one thing which helped was you know, gas prices being so high, it would have been very expensive to launch a sustained attack. Uh, so we were kind of saved through that, you know, back in 2016, that gas, gas was so cheap, it was easy to, to grief the chain. But uh, on this occasion, somebody would have had to have been very determined and wanted to burn a lot of ether to cause any problem. So that helped. I think I share a lot of your perspective, Ben. I think that when it comes to blockchains, which are these decentralized ledgers, no matter how much testing you do, no matter how many you comb through the code meticulously, there are edge cases and there is a potential for a code and a bug um, to be discovered in the protocol just by nature of the fact that it's built by us humans, which we don't think of of everything, like no code is absolutely perfect. So I think these kinds of security vulnerabilities are unavoidable and you have to prepare as much as you can for them. And it's just a matter of preparing for them by having these centralized players like the Ethereum Foundation to fund bug bounties and to have a known core development team that you can explain the vulnerability to and that a couple people will agree to kind of keep it on the DL until they figure out a fix for. 
I don't think it's actually a good thing for Ethereum or Bitcoin or any decentralized protocol to ever get to the point where they're so decentralized that there isn't like a nonprofit foundation uh, constantly funding like bug bounties or there isn't a core development team anymore that is really responsible for maintaining the code. There always needs to be like some amount of centralization for these kinds of edge cases that will inevitably occur because a code base is an evolving thing and it's not something that can, that will remain resilient if it remains static. Yeah, there's definitely a place for a coordination layer or coordination function. And I think the Ethereum Foundation uh, does a really good job of that, um, bringing together the, the diverse teams with very diverse approaches and opinions and, and coming to consensus on this stuff. It works pretty well, in my view. It can be hard work. Um, it's coming back to what Tim said last time about it being a feature, not a bug. You know, it's harder work doing this thing with lots of independent parties, but you, you get better results because you have to put in the work. You can't just can't take anything for granted. Not that you have to provide any, you know, specific details to this, but Ben, when you said there were instances on the beacon chain where similar things like the security vulnerabilities were happening, but that you would disclose them later. I mean, are you currently actively as an Ethereum 2.0 uh, development group are you aware of certain security hacks that you know we're going to find out about in a couple of months time like just be honest with me be real with me i'm a validator on the network i mean are there are there security bugs that you know about have been you know pinged about and are actively working on right now nothing that hasn't been fixed but if you haven't updated your client recently whatever client you're running i recommend you do so <laughs> okay. Well, all righty. All righty. That's a good note for everybody who's listening on this podcast and you're running an Ethereum 2.0 client. Please update your, your client softwares. Speaking of a lot of the praise, I just want to talk about some of the improvements and some of the challenges. Do you think that the Ethereum community, when they saw this announcement, did it have any impact, you think, on specific stakeholders of the Ethereum community, like whether it be users or decentralized application developers, investors? With the blog post and the kind of traction it got, I didn't think it actually got any traction. I didn't see a lot of news organizations like reporting on it either. And Coindesk had like literally three sentences on it. So I was surprised that there wasn't much of a reaction other than for me personally. But I don't know. Did you have a different view on the kind of impact this announcement had when it went live? It did feel a bit like old news, didn't it, at the time? I mean, the fix was already in. It was given a pretty good rationale at the time. Uh, the fix is, I'm not across all the details, but I think they might have broken one or two assumptions around, you know, gas costs in old contracts. The developers, you know, the core devs try to avoid doing that as much as possible, but uh, occasionally it's just not possible. And there's very much an effort to educate smart contract authors not to bake stuff into their contracts based on assumptions about gas prices and so on setting an expectation that these could change at any point in the future. And if you're relying on them, then that's an error. Gotcha. Some nice learnings for decentralized application developers about best practices then mm. from this, which I hadn't thought about. I was just initially shocked. I was like, what? This happened? When did this happen? <laughs> oh, it was a couple months ago. <laughs> um, all righty. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's a wrap for our show this week. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for another episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. Please join us again next week for another weekly roundup of your markets, tech, and community updates related to the Ethereum blockchain. 
If you have any questions you'd like answered on the podcast, you can connect with each of us on Twitter. Our handles are in today's show notes. Give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you and subscribe to our newsletters. I write an update every other week on Ethereum 2.0 development, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter and I'll let you know when the next one is out. Or you can subscribe to Christine's weekly newsletter called Valid Points by going to coindesk.com. See you next time for Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. 